Davis is Soul Searching, crowned as this station's 2016's Show of the Year, right here on JSA Radio. It is our time each week to explore all spiritual and wellness matters that matter. My name is Tom Budge. Soul Searching is a penetrating self-examination of our motives, convictions and attitudes. I'm not shy to ask awkward questions to poke holes in belief systems and to query the way the world taught us to think. My intention is clear. I will never ask you to give up what you hold sacred. I'll never expect you to accept my opinion as the only correct one. But I do encourage you, however, to challenge your personal beliefs and thoughts to open up your mind to fresh ideas and free thinking. How you use these concepts to redesign your life is up to you, isn't it? Today we have a special Christmas show. All who celebrate Christmas do so on the 25th of December each year. This date marks Jesus' birth in a manger somewhere in Bethlehem. It was a major event prophesied and expected for a long time, and it had a profound effect on the way the modern world unfolded. For one, Jesus' birth gave rise to the Julian and Gregorian calendars, the primary systems of global timekeeping today. But the big question is, was Jesus really born on the 25th of December in the years spanning 1 BC to 1 AD? In this show, we investigate biblical texts, historical records, and astronomical events to find out if we can get a better handle on the actual date of Jesus' birth. Any iconic Christmas card has one or more of the following symbols. A bright star, a baby in a manger, proud parents, and three richly dressed wise men bearing gifts for the newborn infant. These symbols represent the heart of the nativity scene, a moment in Christian history that has been prophesied for a very long time. It was the birth of the King of the Jews, God's only begotten Son, descended to earth and now in human form. The belief is that only through his death and resurrection are humans reconciled to God. As important as this date is on the Christian calendar, there is quite a bit of controversy as to whether Jesus is indeed the prophesied Messiah or not. Islam recognizes and reveres Jesus as a prophet and as a man who lived in holiness and free of sin. The Jewish view of Jesus is that he was an ordinary Jewish man and a preacher living during the Roman occupation of Israel. Most historian scholars who wrote on the subject agree that Jesus existed, but many of them contend that he was a Galilean Jew who lived in a time of messianic and apocalyptic expectations. From the evidence at hand, we can accept the fact that Jesus lived on earth some 2,000 years ago, and that he was a very influential character in history. Science is always at odds with Christian religion over the beliefs about Jesus' virginal birth, his claims to be God's only son in human form, Jesus' ability to perform miracles, and of course, his resurrection from the dead. Where one branch of science, astronomy, can offer some help is in solving the puzzle as to the actual date of Jesus' birth. What is not certain is exactly when he was born. The popularly accepted date is the 25th of December, in the transition between 1 BC and 1 AD. But is there any evidence to back this up? 
I have had a long association with the Johannesburg Planetarium and have given many public lectures there on astronomy. One of the popular topics presented over the years during the festive season is a show that tries to solve this puzzle. Astronomy is the scientific study of the stars and planets, and it plays a significant role when figuring out the date of Jesus' birth. Why so? Because there is one shared link between astronomy and the biblical account of Jesus' birth, the star of Bethlehem. If astronomy can shed some information about what the star could have been, then that information might help us to pinpoint Jesus' birthday. Our first reference on our quest for knowledge about the star of Bethlehem has to be the Bible itself, because it is here where we find reference to this unusual star. Here's a text out of Matthew. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for that is what is written by the prophet. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring him back to me, so that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. What facts do we glean from this biblical text? The Bible refers to a phenomenon, and we can presume from this that it was some unknown star-like object seen somewhere in the night sky. It was not a will-o'-the-wisp luminous ball of gas that moved across the surface of the ground, but seems to be celestial and star-like. The star was an omen or portent of some major importance. It seems from the biblical passages that the wise men became aware of this phenomenon sometime before the child's birth, and they decided to take the journey to Israel based on the significance of the omen. It would not have been an easy journey. Crossing the Arabian desert might have been difficult, and so their route would have taken them along an arc through what is now Syria, near to the Turkish border. The mysterious object which they saw in the east guided them. Babylon was the ancient capital of the Mesopotamian world, situated almost due east of Jerusalem, some 885 kilometers away as the crow flies. The ruins of this ancient city lie near the town of Hillah in Iraq. The short account in the Bible neither explains where these wise men originated, nor does it say how many there were that took the journey to Jerusalem. As time passed, traditions around Christmas have become increasingly embellished. Today, it is popularly believed that there were three wise men, but the Bible doesn't tell us their actual number. The count of three is an assumption based on the number of gifts they bared. These were men of great learning, with enough reputation to have Herod consult with them. 
Some versions of the Bible refers to these wise men as the Magi. The word is a Latinized form of the Greek word Magoi, transliterated from the Persian, designating a select sect of priests. We derive our word magic from the same root. The Magi were Kurdish priests credited with profound and extraordinary religious knowledge and were established over the state of religion in Persia. It is very unlikely that they would have arrived stealthily. Instead, their sudden appearance in Jerusalem, traveling in force with all imaginable oriental pomp and accompanied by an adequate cavalry escort to ensure their safe penetration of Roman territory, certainly would have alarmed Herod and the populace of Jerusalem. The star appeared to move across the sky, but no direction is given, leading the wise men to the newborn Jesus. They seem to have arrived in Jerusalem a while after the infant had been born. We don't know how long it was, and it could have been days or weeks later. Herod desperately wanted precise details about the infant's birth and consulted with the wise men. Of importance was the time and place of this birth. One last fact we can take from our biblical account is the time frame in which all of this happened. The scriptures tell us that Jesus was born during the reign of Herod the Great. Herod was a Roman client king of Judea who reigned from 37 BC until his death in 4 BC. Some say that he died in 1 BC, which could then extend the time frame a little. So concerned was Herod that Jesus posed a political threat that he ordered the infanticidal murder of all young boys under the age of two years. Herod must have used the Magi's information to calculate Jesus' age, and we can assume that Jesus might have been just under two when Herod made this order to kill the young boys. But the Bible also explains why Joseph and Mary made their trip to Bethlehem. They were traveling because Caesar Augustus wanted everyone to register in their own town. The Roman census dates around this time were in 28 BC, 8 BC, and again in 14 AD. This census had to be within the time frame of Herod's rule. We can safely say that the census in which Joseph and Mary participated was that of 8 BC. This narrows our time window for Jesus' birth down to the period 8 BC to 1 BC. Given these rudimentary facts, we can now seek a possible astronomical event within our time span that might have been the Star of Bethlehem phenomenon, which caught the Magi's attention. The first type of celestial object worth investigating are comets. They sometimes put on a magnificent display in the night sky. They don't hang around for too long, and they're easily seen. One of the most famous comets of all time is Halley's Comet. It makes regular appearances in the night sky every 75 to 76 years. Halley's Comet made a spectacular appearance in the first half of 1910 because it and the Earth were close to each other at the time. The 20th of April 1910 marked the midpoint of this most amazing display. But Halley's Comet has been around for a very long time, and early Chinese records catalogue its appearance as early as 240 BC. There are also other recorded apparitions, that's the astronomical term for a comet's appearance, of Halley's Comet. Its 1066 AD apparition is depicted on the Bayou Tapestry, 
Its 1301 apparition is linked with the Magi in Giotto's painting, The Adoration of the Magi, and there are historical records of Halley's 1456 apparition in Kashmir and Ethiopia. Some believe that Halley's comet is the star of Bethlehem, but sadly its apparitions don't coincide with our timeline. We know that Jesus was born somewhere during Herod's reign in the time frame 37 to 1 BC, and Halley's Comet made its apparition between August and October in 12 BC, and then again in January 66 AD. These apparitions of Halley's Comet can't therefore be the star of Bethlehem. But Halley's Comet is not the only comet to pass by the Earth. Could the star of Bethlehem be a different comet? Astrologers for thousands of years have always seen comets as representing key portents. The word comet derives from the Latin word comites, which originates from the Greek word komi, whose original meaning is the hair on one's head. In around 340 BC and 60 AD, there were hurricanes when comets passed by. And in 373 BC, there were earthquakes and tsunamis as comets slid through the sky. Aristotle believed that comets were an indicator of climate. From the Roman Empire onwards, comets became the symbol of another kind of disaster, the human-related one. Death, riots, war, slaughter, the death of a king or noble being are the ones that caught most attention. Up into medieval times, comets were the symbols of evil power which brought forth natural disasters and human-related disorders. In 684 AD, when Halley's Comet passed by, there was a three-month rainstorm and an outbreak of the Black Death. So one of our big problems with a comet being the star of Bethlehem is that they are nearly always associated with death or some other bad happening. They never signify a birth or the start of something good. Besides which, the idea of a comet being the star of Bethlehem is a relatively new idea that crept into people's minds only after the Italian Renaissance painter Giotto de Bondone painted the Nativity. That was around about 1305. And in that he showed a star that looked like a comet. Our best source of cometary data are the meticulous Chinese logs. These records list a comet apparition in the year 5 BC. While this apparition fits into our overall time frame of 8 BC to 1 BC, it seems to be too late after the census to be the star of Bethlehem. We can therefore say with much certainty that the star of Bethlehem was not a comet. If astronomy is to offer us any help in finding Jesus' actual birthday, we would have to look for another bright celestial phenomena that could offer us an explanation. Ordinary fixed stars are not important enough to catch the Magi's attention. This would have to be a very unusual astronomical event to motivate their long and arduous journey. Could the star of Bethlehem have been a supernova, a star that died with a bang? Astronomers know that stars don't live forever, but that they have predictable lifespans depending on what kind of star they are. At Harvard College Observatory in the 19th century, astronomers performed large-scale photographic spectroscopic surveys of stars, producing spectral classifications for tens of thousands of stars. 
An astronomer by the name of Hertzsprung later used this data to estimate the true brightness, technically known as absolute magnitude, of these stars. Hans Rosenberg used the same data to approximate the temperature of these stars. By plotting stars on a graph with Hertzsprung's magnitude on the one axis and Rosenberg's temperature calculations on the other, fascinating patterns emerge. Stars cluster in clumps on this chart. Each clump of stars gives astronomers a new way to classify them. This new information gave astronomers a method to calculate star lifespans. The force of gravity holds a star's material together, thus preventing it from dissipating into the surrounding space. But this force also crushes the atoms of hydrogen and helium in the core of the star, causing a nuclear explosion that tends to blow the star apart. These two forces find balance, thus allowing the star to shine with radiant light while ensuring that the star is neither crushed nor blown apart. These are the very forces and reactions that make our nearest star, the Sun, shine brightly. Eventually, the supply of hydrogen and helium run out, and with less mass, gravity weakens. All stars die, but the way they do so differs greatly. One of two conditions arise as a star nears its death. Either the nuclear reaction weakens, while the force of gravity stays strong, or gravity weakens while the nuclear force stays strong. These conditions are opposites. If gravity becomes the stronger force, then it crushes the remaining material. As the star's material contracts, it begins to heat up and then puffs out, thereby dramatically increasing the star's diameter. The material then cools and the star's color changes into red hues. These kinds of stars turn into red giants. As red giants expand even further, they eventually eject material which collects around the dying star, forming what we call a planetary nebula. The core continues to cool and shrink, turning it into a white dwarf, and eventually, as it fizzles out, into a black dwarf. When the other condition of star death occurs, big stars run out of helium. When all the helium is fused into carbon, and under the enormous force of gravity, these mammoth stars begin to fuse carbon into heavier elements like oxygen, magnesium, and iron. The dying star collapses under its own gravity, and the inner core heats up. It eventually becomes so compact, and in less than a second, the iron core shrinks to about 5 kilometers in diameter and then explodes, releasing large amounts of energy and material into the surrounding space. Only a tiny neuron star or black hole remains at the center of all this material. We call this type of explosive star death a supernova. Because of the brightness of their explosion, supernova are easily seen in the night sky. However, supernova are relatively rare observations, with only four having been recorded in a thousand-year period. There was only one supernova in the year 5 BC, but it wasn't in the right part of the sky to be visible to the Magi. Like comets, supernovae usually symbolize the end of something and not the beginning. There's not much else that astronomers can offer as an explanation for the star of Bethlehem. 
The motion of the moon around the earth is too predictable, as is the motion of the planets of the solar system around the sun. There are no surprises here that would capture the Magi's attention. Biblical scholars suggest that the Bethlehem star phenomenon was not a real star at all, but rather some special miracle that God arranged specifically to lead the Magi to the newborn Jesus. Look, this might have been the case, but we don't have any evidence to rule this kind of possibility in or out. But what if a couple of quirky dances between the moon and Jupiter, as well as other interactions between Saturn and Jupiter, intrigued the Magi? Stars maintain their relative positions to one another in the celestial canopy, while planets wander back and forth through the twelve constellations of the zodiac. Dr. Michael Molnar is a collector and experienced astronomer in New York. He once purchased a Roman coin from about the year 6 AD, depicting Aries the ram looking back at some bright star. In Roman astrology, which the Magi would have also known, Aries is the symbol of Israel. Intrigued, Dr. Molnar did some research and found that some interaction between Jupiter and the moon occurred in the constellation of Aries. In Roman and Persian astrology, Jupiter was the Roman ruler of planets, and the moon signified births, especially of new kings. What Molnar found happened at dawn, in the east, on the 17th of April, 6 BC, and it was very unusual. It is what astronomers refer to as an occultation. These are special types of eclipses that occur, when nearby celestial objects obscure more distant ones from our view. On this day in 6 BC, there was a rare occultation when the moon eclipsed Jupiter. Although this occultation wasn't easy to see, the Magi astrologers would certainly have known about it. There is, however, another unusual sequence of events that is worth investigating. Since planets orbit the sun at different speeds and distances, they occasionally seem to cluster close to one another amongst the stars. Astronomers call this a conjunction. Of all the possible astronomical explanations for the star of Bethlehem, this is one of the most common and plausible theories. It finds support long ago with Johannes Kepler, who lived from 1571 until 1630, and was his preferred view. Professor David Hughes, an astronomer lecturer at Sheffield University in the UK, popularized this theory. But there are a few problems with it. Multiple planets clustered together don't look very impressive. They don't look like a single light source that could be referred to as a star, and they occur rather frequently. Conjunctions are not that unusual. Would this have captured the Magi's attention to the degree to which it did? There was a tight conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn in 66 BC and another in 7 BC. We can obviously rule out the earlier conjunction in 66 BC as it doesn't fit into our timeline, but the one in 7 BC is very intriguing. There are records in ancient Babylonian writings that the Magi of that time knew about this unusual conjunction. Kepler wrote about it too in 1603. The constellation of Pisces, the fishes, had a special meaning in ancient Persian astrology. It was the representation of Israel and of kings. Jupiter was the royal planet, 
and Saturn symbolized old rulers. So a new star made up of Jupiter and Saturn in conjunction in the constellation of Pisces would have been very significant indeed. The planetary conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn appearing together in this auspicious constellation of Pisces was deeply significant. But when this grouping broke apart and formed another conjunction, not only for a second time, but also for a third time too, the Magi would have had a field day decoding the impact of this very, very unusual celestial event. This triple conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn occurred in Pisces in 7 BC. It first occurred in May in the east, looking from Babylon. Then, in September-October, it occurred in the west, looking over Jerusalem and Bethlehem from Babylon. And finally, if you were in Jerusalem in December, looking south, it would have occurred directly overhead. It ticks all the boxes, and it also coincides nicely with the census of 8 BC. All the pieces fit nicely. This is evidence enough to convince many scholars to adopt 7 BC as the year in which Jesus was born. However, if we think that it takes a Sherlock Holmes approach to deduce the year of Jesus' birth, then it takes just as much sleuthing to settle on an acceptable date within that year. Could it have been the 25th of December, as is so widely believed? Lacking any scriptural pointers to Jesus' actual birthday, early Christian teachers suggested dates all over the calendar. Clement picked the 18th of November. Hippolytus suggested that Jesus was born on a Wednesday. And an anonymous document, believed to have been written in North Africa around 243 AD, places Jesus' birth on March the 28th. In the absence of any date, what evidence do we have to at least endorse or refute the 25th of December as the actual day on which Jesus was born? The most compelling evidence we have is contained in the Bible's own scriptures. The account tells us that shepherds were in the fields watching their flocks at the time of Jesus' birth. It's midwinter in the Northern Hemisphere in Europe in late December, and it would have been far too cold to allow sheep to graze outdoors. The fact that Jesus' parents came to Bethlehem to register in a Roman census is further corroborating evidence substantiating that Jesus was not born in the cold of winter, as it would have been self-defeating for the Romans to conduct such a census in midwinter. The 25th of December is known to be a pagan celebration of the solstice. This is the time when the sun's apparent journey south, as viewed from the northern hemisphere, had reached its maximum and it started its return to the Northern Hemisphere. The Encyclopedia Britannica says, The use of evergreen trees, wreaths and garlands to symbolize eternal life was a custom of the ancient Egyptians, Chinese and Hebrews. Tree worship was common amongst the pagan Europeans and survived their conversion to Christianity. But there is a little bit of scriptural and secular history that gives us a good clue as to when Jesus was born. John the Baptist's mother, Elizabeth, was six months pregnant when Mary conceived Jesus. So we could deduce the approximate time of year when Jesus was born if we only knew when John was born. John's father, Zacharias, was a priest serving in the Jerusalem temple during the course of Abijah, a course of service that, according to history, corresponded to June the 13th to the 19th in that year. 
Having finished his temple duties, Zacharias returned home and John was conceived. This probably happened near the end of June. Add nine months gestation and another six months being the gap between Elizabeth and Mary's conceptions, and we get a date towards the end of September as the likely time of Jesus' birth. How about that? Jesus was probably born in September, 7 BC. Thank you for listening to Soul Searching here on Gay SA Radio. Your comments and suggestions help shape the show, and I'm always happy to receive them. Write to me at studio at gaysaradio.co.za or post on the station's social media platforms using the hashtag gaysaradio. This program premieres on Sundays at 5pm and repeats the following Sunday at 8am. A full set of podcasts of the show is available on the station's website, gaysaradio.co.za. My name is Tom Budge. Until next time, goodbye.